Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work in today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and you are tuned in to WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I gotta do it like that woman from uh, here to Nightlight. Here in the fog. Um, <laughs> I'm here today with my amazing parents, Beth and Cutler Robinson, to discuss The Edge of Tomorrow. Come on! The ship is going to explode! What are you doing? Find me when you wake up. What? Come find me when you wake up. Great name, right? I think so. Yeah, it's a little vague, but The Edge of Tomorrow means... Before tomorrow. The problem is the marketing folks could not make up their mind about it. Now it's called Live, Die, Repeat. So it, Edge of Tomorrow is a great name. Edge of Tomorrow and then Live, Die, Repeat is a... Yeah, I agree. Um, so, hey, Mom and Dad, thanks for being here in your own house. Lots of fun. <laughs> so, uh, describe the scene, will you? In the recordings at Pentgrass Studios. <laughs> here we are. Record, in, the, in the famous recording studio, mostly... Musical. Now, first of all, I'd have to rename it. It's Monarch Studios. Oh, yeah. It's not Bent Grass <laughs> Studios. But yes, we watched the movie last night. We watched how many movies? Gosh, and, probably 20 since I came home for quarantine. This one is at the top of what we'd like to talk about. So. Yeah. So um, tell me, parents, why do you want to talk about this film? Mom, you go first. Um, I think it's a... a, a Thinking man's sci-fi, which maybe every sci-fi is thinking man's, but it it is it has enough twists that even if you think you figured it out, you can still argue with someone about what you actually saw. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. It's very entertaining. <laughs> For those of you who might sound, and this might sound familiar, my parents uh, also came on the Children of Men episode I recorded on Christmas Eve with our my sister Meredith. Uh, she can't be here right now because she's out saving the world, but. I do have to give credit that she is the one who introduced us to this movie. Um, so thanks, Meredith. Um, because it was so likely that we would have never known about this movie, right? Like this could have completely passed under the radar and I would have never gotten to en- enjoy the fun because it just seemed like any other sci-fi movie, I guess. Yeah. And and Meredith knew, I think she had seen it. And then when we watched it with her, she said, I knew it was something you guys would like. So, you know. That that was yeah very appreciated. Not that we would catch every movie that's come coming out, uh, we could miss some, but I certainly never remember when this came out. It was twenty fourteen, six years ago. Yeah, so it's like it was it marketed, you know, Beth, mommy, and I. Are Beth not, is my mom. Cutler's <laughs> my dad. Do you guys want me to call you Cutler and Beth on the call? Okay, and, Cutler. And, and that is, um, we aren't necessarily the market. I'm sure they would take any ticket buyer, but um. We missed it. Never saw it. Well, for for those of you listening who have also missed it, I'm going to spoil the crap out of this movie today, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch because we're going to talk about craft as well as content. So yes, there will be spoilers, um, but stick through it. And I think if you go watch it after this, you'll probably enjoy it a lot more because there are studies that show that a little bit of light spoilage actually increases your enjoyment. However, if you really want to go watch Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt beat up some aliens, you should go do it now and come back and find me on Mixcloud. So here we go, quick overview. Renamed in the DVD release as Live, Die, Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow is a time-bending human versus aliens popcorn feature directed by Doug Lyman, who you may know as the director of The Bourne Identity. 
It was released in 2014 for Warner Brothers to only a lukewarm opening weekend in the U.S. Considered one of the most underrated action films made in the 2010s, the story is based on Japanese light novel, which means manga, called All You Need Is Kill, written by Hiroshi Sakurazaka in 2004. The film, interestingly enough, takes place in 2020. It follows timid, bloodshy army PR man William Cage, played by Tom Cruise, as he is thrown headfirst into battle against alien mimics who are sweeping across Europe, killing humans with hellish abandon. Despite his complete ineptitude, he dies on the battlefield when a huge alien mimic, wreathed in blue, lunges at him as he holds a claymore, and he's covered in its blood, and then he dies, 21 minutes in. Then he wakes up. He begins to live the same day, and bloody battle scene, over and over again, in a Groundhog Day kind of gone Call of Duty style. He finds the battle hero Sergeant Rita Vertasky, played by Emily Blunt, who has had the same experience, and the two pair up to seek out the brain of these evil invasive creatures and destroy it before their advantage runs out. It's fun. Yeah, the CGI or the aliens were outstanding. Mm-hmm. All the effects were excellent. It's very, you know, Tom Tom Cruise movie style. Um, but ex- is it? Well, it, as far as the visual entertainment factor mm-hmm. that it goes with it, that if you want to go and just have a visually um, stimulating experience, that this would really do it. You know, the the um, All the effects were spectacular. Right, I agree, um, and we di- we all did a little bit of research before talking about it. Um, the one thing I thought was interesting that we talked about last night was the exposition sequence with the scientist when they're all three discussing it. Um, Lyman didn't understand why they had to have that part because he's of the same mind as I am as why do you have to over-explain? And the screenwriter said, well, you did Born Identity, but there weren't time-traveling aliens in Born Identity, therefore we need exposition. So he, he realized that you had to explain things. It That's... definitely helped to watch it twice. I mean, we didn't watch it twice recently. We just watched it recently for the second time. But to it's, it's a movie that's definitely worth watching more than once. In fact, I might watch it again sometime soon. And that's not like me. I'm not one to particularly enjoy watching movies um, more than once frequently. If it's 10 or 12 years, that's different. And why would you do that? Is, is it because you thought you missed something? Yeah, there, mm-hmm. there's definitely things, there's nuances to it, which is, I'm sure, true for lots of movies, but this movie had nuances that I didn't catch the very first time through, and they made, they made it make more sense. But yeah, there's something else to it, and that there's a lot of sci-fi that we like watching that's fun or scary, but there's something about this movie that's kind of that perfect blend of roller coaster of there's just enough fear, but there's just enough fun that you feel like you're not being tortured, right? Like we did, Dad will talk, Cutler will talk about how we just watched The Nightingale and uh, Jennifer Kent. And that movie's not exactly one you want to go watch again right away, right? No time soon. <laughs> so, yeah, Beth, what would you say about rewatching? What would make you want to rewatch this? Um, I think. I'm trying to work out some of the inconsistencies. The The part of the movie that makes it interesting to me is what I can't figure out. Of course, you have an ending that 
it's sort of unambiguous, but then you go back and go, well, how come that happened? And Mm -hmm. so that's why I would say my rules sort of got broken because I sort of just let the ending, you know, happen. But I want to try to figure out why it makes sense Mm -hmm. because I think it does. And I think I just don't get why it makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's great when these movies that are sci-fi and that represent something that's conceivable, but it's unimaginable. So it introduces you to something that you never really imagined. So aliens... You've never imagined aliens invading the Earth? Not in this fashion, (laughs) where one of their control mechanisms was their manipulation of time. So you have to really suspend some belief, and the more belief that you suspend, the less real it seems, and then the less it connects and just becomes a, a visual entertainment movie. But this, you had the sense that there was some technology and some reasons why the aliens could uh, manipulate time mm-hmm. and that they used that to their advantage and that they were doing it all over, not just their solar system or the galaxy, but maybe the universe and the effect that that might have on on not just Earth, but any planet. Well, um, Cameron, just to ask you, maybe we didn't talk about this, but you do feel that when you're watching it, that it has levels of game playing mm-hmm. that, that you can get better at something if you, oh, yeah, they come charging at us out of that cave over on the right, that you you learn that if you've played that level before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hiroshi Sakurazaka said that was the idea for the novel, right, is restarting the game over and over until you get to the final level, and that's exactly what it feels like, and that's why it's so satisfying is because anyone could do it. Anyone like Emily Blunt could do it. You know, she becomes this heroic warrior, the, the angel ever done, but nobody knows that she only got there because she replayed the same day 300 times, right? Until <laughs> she knows where to stop, turn left. Then I duck. Then I go over here. Then I slice. Then I go over here. Then I do that. Right? Like anybody could do something with like enough Spyro. practice. Yeah. It's like watch it playing any game. You know? Well, there is there is definitely that. And, and then the other thing that it's like is Groundhog Day. So mm-hmm. when Tom Cruise is killed by the alien, the alpha alien, then he... When he dies, he reverts back to 24 hours before. And then every time he dies, he goes back to the same starting point. In, in Groundhog Day, Bill Murray gets to try to become a better person. And this, Tom Cruise tries to kill more aliens. Um, yeah, it's it's become it's, a better warrior and save the world. Groundhog Day is about him as a person. And then this movie is about saving the entire planet. Which is a little bit more high stakes, right? Yeah, and figuring out what the what the heck is going on, because waking up every day at the same point is it was the same trope. So in Groundhog Day, it's that song with um, Sunny and Cher. Yeah, right? I've got you, babe. I've right. got you, babe, and everyone loves that joke because by the end, you hate that song too, even though it's a cute song. And in this one, he's getting woken up by a drill sergeant, and that just becomes hilarious, right? On your feet, maggot. <laughs> so good because you learn to like look forward to it right I'm, I'm sure somebody's made a youtube video splicing in the i've got you babe with <laughs> redoing you know with this one because it does oh, seem somebody to do should. That. Yeah. well i mean the thing is it's just like groundhog day and that it balances humor right like so when i think of some of my favorite sci-fi movies like arrival or alien they are not heavy on the jokes the jokes are interspersed maybe here or there just to break the overarching lead-filled tension this movie it feels almost like it's like a balanced meal right like the jokes come pretty much are like one third of the plate to me and that is something that meredith said that really surprised her about this movie because 
the way it was marketed didn't seem like it was a fun movie. It just seemed pretty serious. And I think, I think that's why it works is why it's fun. It's because it's funny. Well, and, and you're right. As far as the humor goes, the change for Tom Cruise is that his character is the butt of the joke. He's the Mm -hmm. one that's, um, has to learn everything and, um, yeah, props to him to take second place behind Emily. That's a big point that y'all both brought out that, it's different than every Tom Hanks movie. I mean, Tom Cruise movie that you <laughs> that you um, that you think of. He comes into it being uh, a coward, and and um, he's not really. He's a reluctant hero. There's no doubt about that. Which is unlike Tom Cruise in most movies. So it's it's. Um, it's it's well put together. The other thing about the jokes, and, and Beth will say this all the time about the Spielberg jokes, they usually land with a thud to us. They We we see it in the movies, and they're like, they don't quite... They're dumbed down. They're dumbed down, or something's not right with them. And these were like more natural. So the writers, I thought, did a great job. Obviously, the acting's pretty good. What part made you laugh the hardest? Oh, well, for me, it was um, when they were training in the facility and, um, yeah, Emily was very impatient with him not making progress. So she basically just pointed the gun at him, like, immediately. Like, I know you're going to screw this up, so just let me just stand here with the gun pointed at you. (laughs) So I actually have a clip on that um, where she said, when she was being interviewed on the BBC about that experience. Again. Your leg's broken. No, I'm good. Then you better start over. Oh, come on. <laughs> Was it fun to come home from work and say, well, today... I killed him 19 times. 19 times. Yeah, seeing Tom Cruise crawling along the floor with a broken leg and me just mercilessly shooting him in the head because I knew that he was useless to me at this point was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> like, that that in and of itself, like... You don't see that happening in any of his films unless it's the pivotal end point of the movie and you know he's going to win. But seeing Tom Cruise, the classic hero, get shot in the head over and over, it wouldn't be funny, but it is because of the repetition, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> right? Like, it's 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 great. It's genius. Well, the, the genius part or the really cool part is that it gets better as it goes on. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. Let the end, I think the end is like, it leaves a lot of doubt about what just happened. Why did he wake up at a different time? What time did he wake up? Uh, there's a reason for that. Why didn't you know? Why didn't she wake up? Because when he saw her at that next wake up, she didn't have any recollection of it. So um, all those things are quite interesting. So okay, uh, uh, what do you think the ending means then? I think that he got splattered with the Omega, and that changed the whole. At the first time, he got splattered with the Alpha, sent him back a day. He got splattered with the Omega, sent him back to a different time. Yeah. My and, theory is, when did he get splattered with the blood? The first at, time was time the next blood. day. It's that special It was time. the next day. Yeah. Yeah. The last time, it was the day before. Oh, yeah. that does make more sense. So he, But he actually got to reset before that day, so still. And can, can he reset now? Because he had lost the ability to reset. Yeah, so hardcore spoilers. Anybody who's watching Giant this, we spoiler, are, we've sorry. completely spoiled the movie completely. But that's okay. It doesn't ruin the movie because it's it's seriously about how fun it is to watch. Knowing it, watching it again. Like, there's nothing we can say. But it's that ending smile 
compared to the very beginning smile that is so good to me. It's the ending smile he's finally achieved actual Tom Cruise. And this is what Doug Lyman really pushes into. Uh, well, Erwin Stoff, the producer, brought me a first draft of the script of Edge of Tomorrow. And, you know, you have a character played by Tom Cruise who uh, is uh, somebody who's been promoting the war for other people to go fight. And, you know, like it's a video game, creating those commercials and, and like, put on the suit of armor and you'll go kill aliens and, you know, it'll be fun. Uh, and then he gets sent to the front lines himself, much to his horror, and he's forced to strap on the suit of armor. And it's, it's not fun at all. He's scared out of his mind. You have the fun of, of Tom Cruise, who's, you know, not being able to do something, right? Because every movie he's in, he's always great at things. It's like, it's amazing to watch him really be bad and not know how to work the suit of armor and accidentally switch it into Japanese. And now he, he really can't control it and scared out of his mind. And, you know, in this massive battle where aliens have taken over all of Europe and he's plunged right into the front lines of it. And then he's killed 10 minutes into the movie. I'm like, whoa, that is... I did not see that coming. Right. Well, the fear would be that he's a, an insincere salesman and that he is selling something that he has no intention of testing. And he's like, no, I don't want it. He's, I don't want to do it. He, in an interview, Tom Cruise said, yeah, so my character's a coward who tries to get out of going to battle, <laughs> right? Like, and that's a great place to start with the characters, like, because that's relatable, right? Like, and none of us, if you saw those things, I wouldn't want to go to war, even if I was wearing a special suit, so... Um, but yeah, I think the, the time jumping ability is what makes it cool. Doug Lyman said that when he read the script and he read the very first moment, like when, when Tom Cruise's character, Bill Cage wakes up, he's like, I wanted to make the movie immediately just for that moment. And then it's like, okay, and how can I make it work after that? And so there's a lot that goes into it beyond just the cool factor, right? Like there's the cool factor. We all suspend our disbelief. Okay. Alien blood means time travel. Fine. Sure. Let's go. But, um, yeah. Well, the other thing that had a lot of similarity to was, uh, um, you know, D-Day and the, and the landing on the beach, they, they were going in and they're fighting, fighting them and in the battlefield. And it was very chaotic. And he was like the reluctant cowardly, um, hero. Red badge of courage. And, and, and he's fight, but he starts to fight as best he can. And he's, and he's quite fortunate. And then he becomes super fortunate to run into that the alpha type alien and and he just basically blows himself up and the alien at the same time gets splattered with the alien's blood and that gives him superpowers or the the same power the power yeah and And, and until that point you didn't know what the heck to expect yeah and so the um you had told me cameron about the book or the original aliens were more at home in water did mm-hmm. you say that yeah in the in the manga they were aquatic yeah so that them on the beach um they're they're almost like you know haunted jellyfish but yeah. e- e- you know more evil than that um I, but i did read something that said that if you look at the uh the monsters that come after them in um uh after neo uh, then those are they're similar. They are the similar. Matrix. Yeah, in the Matrix, they're similar except they have lots of eyes. But they have they're sort of little black octopuses, octopi. <laughs> well, so I definitely want to talk about the de- production design of the mimics. But before we do that, the whole Dad men- Cutler mentioned World War Two. So the film was released in the U.S. on June sixth, twenty fourteen, which was the seventieth anniversary of D Day, which is when U.S. and British troops landed on the beach of Normandy and. Um, 
Within the exact timeline of the historic event, the premieres experienced comparable deja vu of weather conditions starting near 6 a.m. in an IMAX theater. So it was like very eerie. But I also wanted to bring up this felt like at first like a little bit of a military recruiting kind of thing, right? Like they, you see that a lot in Hollywood, the the Hollywoodification of battle and the heroicness of battle. But then you watch it and you realize that's not exactly true, right? It's like it's, the battle is not is not like heroic and beautiful. It's people getting squashed, right? You're, it's, but um, I wanted to bring up the whole idea of Verdun. They reference Verdun and they reference Europe a lot, which in the manga was, of course, it was taking place in Japan. But in real life, Verdun was the site of the bloodiest battle of World War I in 1916. It lasted almost a year and estimated one million men on both sides dying. Thanks. Yeah. That's a lot. So, you're listening to They Came From Outer Space. I'm Cameron Kidd, joined here by Beth and Cutler Robinson, and we are talking about the film Edge of Tomorrow. Excuse me! Yes? Who said you could talk to me? There's something on my face, soldier. You did. You did. Tomorrow, at the beach. You said to find you when I wake up. You do know what's happening to me. Come with me. All right, so Beth, um, let's get into the production design of the mimics. What stood out to you the most about them, that they're jellyfish-like? What made them scary? Um, I think, to me, what made them scary was how fast they moved. They sort of, they were able to roll using their little tentacles, and they were unpredictable and seemed to be able to move in eight different directions very quickly. Plus, as soon as they got there, they just sting you or kill you or whatever. So there was, it's like being attacked by a giant spider, you know, something that has way more uh, limbs than you do. They almost don't defy gravity. They don't, they don't obey gravity, it seemed like, because they would move in multiple directions. And when, when we watched this behind the scenes of Imageworks, how they designed them, they decided to just not give them skeletons and make them just kind of amorphous tentacled beings that can leap. And so it kind of draws on what makes snakes scary to us is it doesn't have a bone structure. <laughs> like, it's freaky because it's very not human. Also hard to shoot at. So Doug Lyman said um, his they, the entire decision around how to design the mimics was um, completely character-driven. So they designed the characters thinking, what would be the most scary thing to see if you're wearing this big mech suit? Like, if you're wearing this big, powerful jacket... What would be the thing that would make you most terrified and want to jump and run? Like, what would play the best against that? And I thought that was so smart. And he goes, something super, super fast, right? And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Because, like, you know, they see this whole army of them plunking around in these big jackets, and they look really cool. He keeps calling them suits of armor. That's what Doug Lyman calls them. He's like, what would make you want to jump out of that suit of armor and run? And I was like, yeah, those are pretty it. (laughs) I think, like, they're very scary. And probably good for the CGI to do because they're not based on any creatures that we know of. And they kind of shape-shifted a, li- a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. Maybe like a jellyfish or octopus, you know, they would... But they were super, super fast. And even if you got out of the suit, there was no hope about run- running them in any-, any way. But you can't shoot them. Right. There was, there was a scene, I guess, of, on the beach where they come out of the sand and they create a hole 
and everybody starts to fall into the hole as the sand starts to fall toward the hole. And then it ran around in circles and mm-hmm. got everyone like a spider mite or you mm-hmm. know, some predator would. Ha ha, you fell into my trap. It kind of remind me of sea urchins too. Like they're just, yeah, creepy. Yeah. They, and then the alpha was even that much scarier and reminded me a little bit. The face reminded me of the dragon and, and, um, Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. it it did kind of howl and growl and wasn't fire breathing, but it was something. More, yeah, it yeah. still had it still had that form, right? So it had two eyes and a mouth, which eh, I'm sure Neil deGrasse Tyson would be like, "Boo," because <laughs> he, he hates saying stuff that's too similar to us. But yeah, I mean, I I think the other thing Doug Lyman said is the power of having the ability to reset time would make you invincible anywhere you went in the universe. And the creatures don't even have to be that intelligent, right? So there are only a couple alphas that control a lot of the other creatures, but that would make you pretty invincible if you knew exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. So they didn't have any other powers besides that. Except numbers. Did they shoot anything or did they kind of shoot like missiles? They shoot the missiles out of themselves. Yeah, they did. That's right. Wait, And, um, but they weren't like all that powerful. uh, Like they could be killed with a machine gun type of weapon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, the, the speed was definitely to me, like you said, the scariest part. There was another scene where that wasn't on the beach that they could see them coming toward them, like five of them on the horizon. And they got there about the time it took you to blink. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, that's how quickly. So that uh, is so scary. You don't have time to turn around and run. So what would you do if you could live the same day over and over? Like, let's say tomorrow. What would you do with that power? S- study a, a vaccine. Oof. Too real, Dad. <laughs> Too real color. Yeah, as people say, bet on the ponies. Work on my <laughs> golf swing. Work on my golf swing. I'd, salt, I'd, you know, I'd saunter on down to the ponies and start betting. But yeah, I mean, I, so what do you think are the themes... That, that this movie is trying to express like what is it what's it what are its themes um i feel like definitely that the camaraderie was one thing that was um important and that came to help him later the camaraderie of the motley crew of his group which was what the j squad the j yeah, good memory j yeah. something um once they were called upon they acted as a very cohesive unit and i think it's because they accepted each other's differences and faults they didn't have a whole lot of airtime, but that became very useful that they mm. were uh willing to serve each other mm. that's good so what about you how about uh, how about the idea of reincarnation and redemption that those characteristics are rebirth that for some reason it's easy for us to believe, you know, we don't have anything that tells us that there's anything really like that, but it's easy for us to believe that there could be a rebirth or a reincarnation. Bill Paxton has a whole phrase about it when he's walking. He's like, uh, battle is the great redeemer. You will be born again. So of course, (laughs) not likely. (laughs) Well, except it did happen to poor pitiful Tom. (laughs) 
You needed alien blood to do it. <laughs> you just need, just need some alien blood. Yeah, what do you think, Theme? I think it was similar. I mean, I had written down faith, which I thought was interesting. So, yeah, being born again, it almost seemed like it was dealing with a religious thing. But the, the main one to me is the importance of practice. Like, <laughs> that seems to, like mastery comes through practice. Like, that seems to be a theme for me, which is like, all people are only good at things by doing them over and over. And the, it kind of, I like the movie because it kind of takes away superheroes because it shows that the only way you could become a superhero is by having to do the thing over and over, right? Like that, like Perseverance. anyone could do the thing if they have to keep persevering. Yeah. I thought and, that was cool. And, and that was something that the way the movie started, Tom Cruise's character, Bill Cage, could was not going to be someone that was going to persevere and, and no, he tried to get out. He tried to, he tried to get out of battle, but, he, but through circumstances, he had it in him and he, he did persevere and save the world. So Cameron, um, yeah. One of the other things as far as that, that went was the, uh, the cage characters. You said that he was like a salesman. He, what was so interesting was that he had been selling this piece of equipment for the battlefield that was supposed to be so helpful when, as you say, it was an empty promise. He didn't even know how to get the safety He couldn't off. get the safety off. And that was so, to me, I think would be interesting because some people will say that you, you get a new piece of equipment and then you go, I don't even know how to make this thing work. Well, the, one of the things I think is the ending that he was, he was turned his eyes were black, that there's something we haven't talked about, that it is um, very possible that he's alien blood is in him. We all three watched it, and we don't necessarily see the same things. Well, that's cool. So, And that's watching it for the second time. So I think watching it for the first time, there's no way you're going to hear this podcast, watch that movie, and go, oh, that's what they were talking about. You're going to think about it afterwards. Because it comes at you so fast, the movie that's that's is one of the best things about the movie. It's there's not a dull moment. Yeah, there's no fat. Like so, watching this as a filmmaker, I'm always looking for like, what do I appreciate? And I appreciate if a movie completely immerses me and I'm not thinking about anything else. So that movie, it's like, it's like pacing is so perfect that you're being pulled along, and it uses film language and edits and cuts to do something that is intriguing that we all buy, right? Like so. All you have to do is cut and restart the scene. And once we've established that that's him starting his day over, you believe it, right? Um, and as a filmmaker, what's interesting, what I, what I already mentioned to you guys, is you already shoot the same scene 20 or 30 or sometimes 100 times. So I wonder how they did it. Like each day, would they start and go, okay, they're going to do this version one, version one, version two, version two of just the same shots, right? Like you can kind of reuse the same stuff. Um, but if he is the alien at the end, what, what does that mean? Maybe we're all aliens. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Let's talk about the jacket, the suit. What did y'all think about that suit, the gear, the, the whole mech idea? Well, I'm sure you guys know more from the only thing I can think of is like Transformers, anything oh, okay. that I'm, I know there's another two or three or five movies where you can get into a bigger suit and it makes you a more a bigger battle person. But um, it didn't seem well fit for a beach i will say <laughs> that that seemed to be a technical error like you're you know you're running in sand in a giant suit was a mistake turns out there were other reasons why it didn't work but um you know i would think it'd be better for running in the city streets mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but it looked very, you know, it's six years ago. We can all see in 15 to 20 to 30 years that there will be the beginnings of those suits being used. Um, in military ho- operations? Ho- hopefully not necessarily for military operations, but maybe like at an earthquake or, you know, to save people or an accident. Yeah, I think they have that like kind that. of stuff for people who do like heavy lifting of things. So they have like leg assists and stuff. Yeah. For people oh, who would, okay. So I think mm-hmm. that stuff. But what's interesting to me is it was kind of an equalizer, right? So like anybody can get in the suit and it gives everybody roughly the same additional amount of power. So that, that kind of redu- changes the idea of, of, of an army, right? They, they kept saying limited training. So like it was basically a way to recruit everybody. Right, like just get in the suit. <laughs> but you're right; it made the, it didn't make them like invincible. It just meant you could go die. But Doug Lyman chose not to do CGI suits, and that was a big choice. And I think that's part of the reason why this film works is because everybody that was interviewed was like, "Yeah, we thought we would all do CGI suits," and Doug Lyman said, "No, I'm making a movie about characters behind enemy lines. I didn't want them wearing computer generated suits because." This takes a toll on the actors and it takes a huge toll on the crew, but the performances we got out of the suit are amazing. And the humor that you get of seeing him in the suit is amazing too, but these were 80 pounds. And so even after training the first day that um, Emily Blunt got onto set and wore it, she just broke down crying because it hurt so much. <laughs> and she said, Tom Cruise goes, come on, stop being such a wuss. But it was joking, like joking, but you know, the physicality of having to actually wear the thing, I think makes the performance believable. Right, because okay. like you really see him like kind of lum- lumbering around in it, and it, it just makes the whole you know thing a lot more fun to watch. They were not volunteers. None no, of the, uh, none of except these. for him. So that no, always... wait, no, they were volunteers. I thought no, were they recruited? It's never said Boy, specifically. They, they act like recruits. No, they, it seemed they like, like an army to me. Draft. They were. Yeah, I feel like at the at that point in the war that they were not the first recruits. Yeah. They were the <laughs> fifth or sixth or eighth, you know, line they of were, recruits because everyone else had already lost. They weren't disciplined, and they, you know, they were amateurish. But, you know, the choice when you're making a $127 million film to go ahead and say, no, I'm not going to do CGI. I mean, I was watching behind the scenes stuff. They literally had to have like a crane line lifting up Tom Cruise when he's running in the thing, just holding him up so he could move. Like, that's just so much work. But, I mean, there's there's a whole lot of CG mixed in, but they used a lot of real life sets and real life props. Because you and I were all, we were all mentioning, like, wow, the CG looks really real, looks really good. It was good. There's no yeah. doubt. Yeah. What What do you think then about the training facility where they had the pretend mimics that were coming at you at fast speed? Those were pretty CG, mm-hmm. I thought. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I I would think they'd have to be because <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't by your injured. head. Yeah, there would have been a lot of beheadings <laughs> on that set. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought. I think it's important for the effects to sell the movie and not distract you from the movie. And this one, they felt really realistic. So the guy who was the head visual effects designer, Nick Davis, also did um, Harry Potter and the Dark Knight. Guess who was the cinematographer? Dion Beebe from Equilibrium. <laughs> it's the same guy. Okay. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Fun stuff. How about the Bechtel test? Do we, are there any yeah. other, other females in the characters in the movie in yes. the in the the one girl that's in the j squad j okay. troop there's gotta be there's the there's the assistant who works for the general yeah <laughs> so that's three i think they all have names so yeah dad what's the bechdel test that's it's a criteria to establish whether there is a 
enough f- feminine activity in the movie to to warrant some sort of equal um, equal equalization between the sexes. And when you mention it to me, it's amazing how certainly back in the forties and fifties you'd see lots of movies without much activity or roles of females. But um, even today, it's it's weird how many movies do not have much um, female characters um, developed, and unless it's centered around a man, as opposed to um, men's characters that centered around a female. Okay, so yeah, actually, since the 1990s, the amount of films that pass the Bechdel test have flatlined at around 50%. That's more than I thought, so that's good. Yeah. Um, but it requires that there be two female characters with names who spend more than 20 seconds speaking to each other about something other than a man. And that sounds like not that big of a deal, but it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to do this in an movie action d- film. Did not did not meet that. But it made I think in a lot of ways it made up for it with this female character who was so strong who Emily Blunt said wasn't necessarily butch but was like a completely um capable killer from all of her courage and chutzpah and like was very exciting and interesting character. And also didn't take any crap from Tom. But she was also very quick to say the reason I did well was because I had some special powers. Yeah. Well, and then that begs the question, and this is, the you know, like prequel and sequel. If there was a prequel, was she reluctant hero too? Oh, and, I would love to watch that and, if that was the prequel. And based on what Tom Cruise's character experienced, then that would be, you know very conceivable yeah yeah actually you're right a prequel would be interesting because in this case there there was some um explanation for the time change that was also um confirmed by her but in her case when it happened she would not have had confirmation so yeah good idea for interesting one where mm-hmm. she'd have to figure it out mm-hmm. she didn't have anybody helping her along Could any exposition a good fairies. series yeah of, like a you know, a t- mini-series type of thing, too, because um, when did they land and what happened? Because how long had they been on the planet? A year? Mm-hmm. And they'd only taken over yeah, two-thirds rec- of Europe. I don't recall how long they'd been there. That that would, yeah. would help to know, but it seems like it was longer than a year. Might be. So, the you know, what's it like the aliens landed on the Earth and started taking it over? They didn't... Ha- their power was changing the t- time mm-hmm. and it was almost inferred that they're like by the scientists that they are like a virus floating through the, the universe just kind of spreading without a lot of intention and i thought that was that was something i would like to have explained a little more now beth if you could go back to that point you made at the very beginning about doug not wanting to have exposition what part was that um the exposition that that he was having trouble with was um once emily accepts that cage has the same issue and then she takes him into her confidence also they go to the man who has the the little machine that i don't even know the name of it there's some helpful machine that he has also understands that there's a time problem going on and he stands there and explains it to cage in more detail you know, like, this is why this happened. It's because A came before B came before C. And Lyman, I think, they had said, he was saying, I don't think I need that. And it probably the same reason you say you don't want a lot of fat. He doesn't want to spoon feed 
everyone. Mm -hmm. But that they said, well, you have to because time travel's a little more difficult than Spy Guy, you mm -hmm. know, and Born Identity. So unless you had time travel and Born Identity, I don't did, think you did. Did the whole universe go back a day? And, and why a day? Is it the well, planet that you're on? Here's what's really going to bake your noodle. When he goes back a day, did the Alpha also? Does the Alpha know? Well, they go back a day, but they, they remember everything just like he does. Are they like on different does. timelines? Like, if the Alpha resets every day to win a battle, right, then he has the same power. It is it also matching the Tom Cruise ones? Because, you know, at this point, could there be very... I mean, it's like confusing how many little universes are getting spawned by every new day that he starts. The day starts over only for him, right? It's only his universe. So does the universe only get saved in the one Tom Cruise universe on the day 340 when he actually gets it right and the rest of the universes, the other variations of it all die? I don't know. I don't either. That's a tough one. Mm. Prequel needs to get further explanation. So speaking of prequels, you know what the sequel is called. Um, you told me yesterday. I live, die, repeat, repeat. Yeah. Live, die, repeat, and repeat. Which no. everyone on the internet hates. <laughs> Well, Edge of Tomorrow is not particularly descriptive until you really thought about it. It's just a great name. So we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about marketing as well as the relationship between this movie and Oblivion. You're listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm Cameron Kitt, joined here by Beth and Cutler Robinson, and we are talking about Edge of Tomorrow. I went really fast down this dirt road and then I had to take a turn and the stunt coordinator was like, I want you to go really fast and just swing that trailer out behind you. Like, you can take it really fast. And I could see Tom looking at me like, do you know how to drive? <laughs> so we set off and I'm driving along and I know I'm taking it too fast, but I thought, I've got this. And Tom was next to me and I could hear him going, break, 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 break. Oh my God, oh my God, break, oh my God, I'm break. <laughs> So I took the turn too fast and didn't make it and drove us into a tree. He knew this, that when he was saying break, 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 he, he went, and I knew in your head you were like, shut up, Tom. <laughs> and I said I was. I was like, oh, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Good driving. I forgot to unhook the trailer. Okay. We're back. So this is the tragic thing. There are a lot of articles written about this, and one of them that I really liked was when bad marketing happens to good movies. And we were all trying to figure out why is it that this movie isn't more popular. It's so underrated. It's so great. And yet no one really knows about it. We didn't even really know about it when it came out. It was $120 million budget. And then Warner Brothers spent $100 million marketing it. And yet it didn't work. So why, why do you think that is? Well, I guess I'd have to ask you, what did they do with their marketing dollars? They Because it was it didn't help. Either there was... Too much activity at the box office when they were trying to push this movie through, or they just pulled a boneheaded move and didn't get, didn't get it out there because we didn't hear about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it it definitely didn't connect to us for whatever reason, and um, you know, it's so did, underrated. Did the marketing company? get fired well so here's here's kind of my takeaway from all the research i did basically the marketing misrepresented the film and didn't feature emily blunt or the humor or the real concept of the movie at all they spent a lot of money marketing it as kind of a generic alien shoot 'em up and this was literally one year after tom cruise had just been in a sci-fi movie called oblivion and i think those got confused for people these movies are 
similar and yet extremely different. And the, the style, like, so if you watch the trailers, all the trailers that were pushed featured Tom Cruise, explosions, aliens, and it wasn't very funny. There were maybe a couple clips, but there was hardly any Emily Blunt, hardly any of the kind of vibe. So they didn't, they reduced the idea to a bland alien shoot 'em up. People got it confused with a lot of other movies that were coming out, didn't see what was special or unique about it, and it was a complete flop. We love Oblivion as well, but it's a different movie entirely. And that fact that we will confuse those is also a marketing failure. I mean, it's it's kind of stinks for Tom Cruise because, like, it's not bad. He, I have to say, I respect him a lot after all the learning about this. But, like, I guess the lesson is don't do two back-to-back genre films that are similar if you're a big-name actor. Like, like so, 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 Cutler, tell us about Oblivion. Oblivion is also Earth has aliens have attacked or, well, they've attacked and created chaos. And Tom Cruise is to take care of a sector of the, of the planet. His character takes care of a sector of the planet. And it's like the aliens are in dormancy. I'm not going to give away as much of this movie, but um, it's as you watch those two, they are very different movies. But they're just, like you said, they're in the same genre. Yeah. Um, but there's no reason to for them to be marketed the same or someone to think of them same as the same. And I thought of could get them mixed up. If you asked me like six months ago to keep the difference between the two, I'd get the names mixed up for sure. Yeah, I, I guess it's because they are somewhat too generic and they don't even have to be sci-fi. Oblivion could have been... A, a love story, actually. You just don't really know. And Edge of Tomorrow could have been a soap opera <laughs> or something. It doesn't really say sci-fi, so the name may not help. You know what is a good name? Alien. <laughs> they, they took that one when they did that. They just, Ridley Scott's like, Alien. Done. <laughs> short, short and sweet. Alien. But and I think, you know, Live, Die, Repeat isn't that bad. I understand. It's just like, but why would you change the name of a movie after it's already come out? That just seems so silly to me. Was Edge of Tomorrow changed? Yeah. So when they released it on the DVD, they didn't have the word Edge of Tomorrow anywhere on it. It was just called Live, Die, Repeat. So when it came out in theaters, it was Live, Die, Repeat? Nope. It was called Edge of Tomorrow. But then when it was released later, the studio decided to have changed the name halfway through. It's like like recording an album and then going on tour. And then when you release the CD, changing the name of the album. (laughs) You know? Like, Why? Of course, live, die, repeat is also vague enough. I kind of like how that sounds, but that's because we know. It's more descriptive. So don't ask me to name it, but I know that Edge of Tomorrow, even though I like it, it's... It still got lost. It It was too generic. So do you think that naming the movie is of such high importance? Well, studios do. So from Mm -hmm. what I've learned, when you... If you if you sell a film to a studio... The, the chance of them changing the name you've given to it are 90%. Mm-hmm. 90% because they have, they're obsessed with marketing. And I think the problem is often they get it wrong. And I feel like I, the, we were watching Hitchcock movies. A lot of the reason the Hitchcock movies were successful is because he was so involved in his marketing for his movies. He wanted it all to become part of a co- cohesive experience. And I think when your movie gets disconnected from how you imagine it and it gets connected to a big marketing campaign, they say like, okay, if you really want to fight for a name, but renaming happens all the time because they put it through, you know, uh, focus groups. Well, and you know, that's like band names and, and album names and things like that. If the movie is truly stellar, then it will overcome a, a weak name. 
And this movie's truly stellar, but it's also in competition with a bunch of other stellar movies. Um, yeah, the thing about this movie is if you watch the first five minutes, I'll say, you're hooked and you, you won't get up. It's not, it hooks you, it gets you quickly in. And I think it's because, too, you feel like you're Tom Cruise. Even mm-hmm. though you'd think we would identify with Emily, mm-hmm. we are the everyman who's experiencing the day over and over. And it, I have to find out what happens to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, it does a good job. Unlike Mission Impossible, you do relate to him. He's a relatable character, even though he's handsome and can run at 25 miles an hour when he takes off. It's like he, this, the whole idea of him not being able to get his safety and turning the suit into Japanese and can't even move it. And yeah, like that. He's on the ship about to get deployed. You really do feel like you're right there experiencing it with him. Like you have no preparation. So that's powerful. And he isn't like the classically most awesome actor in the world, but he sure as hell could create that sense too of Mm -hmm. being not the superhero of being the goofus. He's like, I can't stand the sight of blood. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, Oh, the swarm, the swarmy, um, marketing guy that he was at the beginning, it was very believable. And, Mm -hmm. you know, very much had disdain for him. Yeah, you wanted to slap him, and you were happy when the general did what he did. You're like, yeah, you deserve it, even though that was at the very beginning. And I can't think of another movie where he has that character at all. I mean, even Oblivion, he starts off the movie very capable. So he gets typecast as capable action guy. Mm -hmm. But Doug Liman said he specifically took on this movie after reading the script because he really wanted to see Tom Cruise do a role he's never done yet, which is someone who's very bad at what what he does. Like, there's just something satisfying about it. Like, oh, look at him. He can't even move his gun. (laughs) It's weirdly satisfying to say I like watching Tom Cruise die, but I didn't feel bad when I heard Emily Blunt say the same thing. Well, she she was great too, and she her role it's it's every bit equal to his, and her performance is every bit equal to his, and um, they they did a good job pairing those two together. Yeah, she's such a good actress that even with almost no backstory, like they give no backstory. So in the manga, there's tons of backstory on her character, right? Like you you follow her from childhood, you see her parents die, all this stuff. Her character, it's like. She's such a good actress that she delivers that strength, but also the vulnerability of the fear. Like, you you really believe in her. Like, you first thing you see is her doing a plank with her feet off the ground. So it's, like, show-off-y, right? Like, you know that she's powerful. But she's also um, weak because she's lost her power, right? Like, so I like that. But So so as film, for a filmmaker, what can what could a filmmaker learn from this movie? Like, what, Or what could we as an audience learn from this movie? Like, what's a good takeaway? I I think for me, I don't want to compare this movie to Galaxy Quest, but of course I am now, was that (laughs) Galaxy Quest was a strange combination of humor and an actual action story. This Mm -hmm. was more action with just enough humor to help it and carry it along because the humorless sci-fi movie is done to death and, and this could have been made that way where there was no humor. I think the humor added... Each minute of humor was worth five minutes worth just because it it was funny. It was relatable, and um, it wasn't going for ha-ha laughs. It was just going for reality laughs of, okay, dumbo, <laughs> one more time. <laughs> what I would get from it from a filmmaking standpoint would be 
all your effort into making the scenes just right and the actors just right is make sure that your marketing team is just right. Because, yeah. Because it's as if they didn't watch the movie. Yeah. I um, mean, but there's nothing, a lot of times there's nothing the director can do about that, right? Like, I mean, I guess you can suggest things or help make it, but, you know, it's up to the studio how they direct, how they release the trailers. There's, a, there's often, there's like three or four studios that make all the trailers in Hollywood. That's the situation. So all of them kind of feel the same. So give me an example or two of movies that have suffered from the bad marketing, as you're saying, like tone deaf marketing. Hmm. Children of Men. Didn't have any. I, I don't know how Children of Men was marketed, but I just know that it wasn't as successful as it should have been. Well, I guess I'll reverse the question. How about what would work on getting you to go see a movie? Like what intrigues you when you see a trailer or hear about it? Like what makes you want to see a movie? A hint of a twist. Hmm. Right. I I think so. I guess it, normally um, a hint of a twist and not uh, more of the same. Like like the idea of you know number five, number six, whatever it is. Like I really have no interest in that, but something that is different that you haven't heard. Um, and I'm not sure if they were would have been able to do that marketing wise without giving it away yeah so when we went to go see star wars recently we saw five trailers that were for all the for, for the same movie and it's the same pattern it's like white guy problem <laughs> explosion <laughs> and then movie it's like i then there was the, the trailer for tenet have you guys seen that that's the mo- same guy who did interstellar and it looked like pretty standard action movie and then there's a twist slightly where i remember seeing the trailer for um inception and it looked cool and then you see that scene where the hallway starts to turn and I immediately was like oh this isn't a normal film like okay I just want to see a little bit of that and I wonder how you could package that into this trailer like I think they could have played some of those Groundhog Day moments and make it more fun or something I don't know we'll have to watch and figure it out it it, there is a lot of cliches or uh, situations for Tom Cruise in the movie that if they put spliced it together like Beth just said it could look like 20 different, 20 other movies that are similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it would miss out on the interesting part of it. All right. So our last question before we wrap up, for somebody who's listened to this, or maybe part of it, we're talking about the movie Edge of Tomorrow from 2014. Why would you say it's worth going and seeking out and watching? Because it will surprise you. And, mm-hmm. and you will say this was a, a unique movie and... I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and and everybody could. I mean, if you were looking for a, a straight comedy, you're still going to think it's funny. Um, but just the it doesn't give up either one, and you will be glad that you went. And you'll wake up the next day, and you and you something about the movie will occur to you, and that you maybe put two two and two together, or you'll think about it more than just when you turn it off. You'll think about it the next day, likely. And that's all you can ask for, right? It's like something fun, stimulating. Um, Especially right now in the midst of coronavirus, I think that we can only use a little bit of an escape. So thank you so much, Beth and Cutler Robinson. Thank you for coming on. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of They Came From Outer Space. I'm Cameron Kitt. You can find out more about this show on WRIR.org or get in touch. Leave a comment. Find us on Mixcloud by searching They Came From Outer Space. Our next episode coming up on first and third Thursdays. You're tuning in to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond, Indie Radio. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you.